podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. But before we get into that, we will let Rich have the stage for a little retroactive history. Yes, yes, yes. I remembered while recording last time, but never got back around to mentioning, that Yellow Fever also played a huge role in a successful end to the slave revolt that was a backdrop to Operation Voodoo. Between 1802 and 1803, a yellow fever epidemic ravaged the French troops stationed there. The French had no immunity to the disease, while the natives and slave populations originally from Africa largely did. Almost twice as many French died in Haiti to disease, about 50,000, and would die at Waterloo over a decade later. So decisive was the disaster that when Napoleon abandoned Haiti, he abandoned all other colonial ambitions in that part of the world and signed over the Louisiana Territory to the United States, effectively doubling our country's size. So, thank you, Mr. Mosquito. Also, just like how I groused in earlier episodes about name tapes being on the wrong side of the uniform before remembering they didn't even have name tapes in World War II, I did my usual grouse about swastika armbands in the field on the cover of issue 16 without noticing one of said wares had it on the wrong arm, supposed to be on the left. I know DC War Comics were swastika happy back then because they needed to make sure you knew who the bad guys were, but work with me. Also, also... My attempt to be a smartass with my girls in love number 45 teaser backfired when I discovered there is no such comic. Believe it or don't, Quality's Girls in Love comic started at issue number 46 when it took over for the renamed G.I. Sweethearts at issue 45 in 1955, photo of the album. DC's Girls Love 45 does exist, but that's not what I said. Moving on to the Intel report, 30 Days of Night, Red Snow, Originally a three-issue miniseries published by IDW in 2007, I, pur- I purchased it as a softbound collection the following year. Ben Templesmith is the writer and artist, and I got him to sign my copy at some random con I attended. Winter, 1941. The Eastern Front in the Soviet Union. British military attache Corporal Charlie Keating is observing the war on the Soviet side and ensuring vital war supplies get through to help Stalin fight the Nazis. But something else is out there in the bitter cold. It goes against every fiber of their beings, but the Russians and Germans will have to team up if any of them want to survive. If you are familiar with the 30 Days of Night franchise, you already know what the something else is. I know what it is. It's Cheeks the Toy Wonder. (laughs) (laughs) He's relentless. He cannot be stopped. Cheeks! (laughs) Cheeks, no! (laughs) So, like, you heard it here first, folks. The, the the mistakes, the killjoys are piling up so so hard and heavy on Rich that he's starting to short circuit. <laughs> and he accidentally just about made up uh, the correct name of a romance comic franchise that now we got to cover an issue of. I don't care which one. Just pick it. Special mission, 100 issues from now, 100 episodes from now, we're doing it. Oh, I think it has to be GI Sweethearts, just on principle. Yeah, There's that, just something about that. It's just Well, <laughs> as you know, as is well known to any lover of fine 80s pop music, love is a battlefield. With that out of the way, we're going to, this episode, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 21 right after we take a small podcast promo break to check out a show that probably makes a little more sense than we have so far. So we'll be right back. 
It is a time of chivalry and adventure. It is a world of magic and legends. It is a story of... Are we there yet? For the 20th time, no. These two. What are we going after again? A dragon. Are you sure? I thought it was a giant. That's the beauty. It hasn't been decided yet. Queen of the Knights is a new production from Azir Voices, where you, the listener, choose what happens. Go to azirvoices.com. That's A-E-S-I-R voices.com for all the details. Ooh, a kitty! Did that cat just breathe fire? And we are back. So, like I said, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 21. And as is SOP here on the show, Rich is going to hit you with the cover detail. Art by Luis Dominguez. The Red Weird War Tales title rests on a black background on the top third of the page. 20 cents! A lone GI is using a grapple hook to climb a castle wall, which is spotlit by a jeep-mounted light far below. To his horror, far above him, in the Kevlar's Cover's foreground, are two skeletal figures dressed in medieval knight's armor, swords drawn, waiting for him. Cover date, January 1974, date of release, October 25th, 1973. Killjoy, what is one GI doing climbing a castle wall at night, fully illuminated by a spotlight? There should either be a lot more of the GIs or no spotlight at all. Yeah, um, I have a feeling he lost a bet or his, uh, his, his troop doesn't like him very much. But that aside, comments and commendations from me. We got another great silent cover, in my opinion. The execution of the perspective in the drawing and the coloring really makes it all work. Even if it doesn't exactly mirror the events of the story within the issue, it still draws you in. I, ex- I especially like how the one armored skeleton is practically in a batting stance with his sword all choked up on the handle like oh keep climbing there buddy i got something for you so i liked it yeah i don't know anything about medieval armor that kit can be all wrong and i wouldn't know looks sweet though the swords do look too small to my untrained eye i like the look of terror on the gi's face certainly in the tension grabbing cover so cover out of the way we're gonna jump right into the first story in the issue which is entitled one hour to kill it's a long one it's 14 pages written by jack olick art by frank robbins all right the synopsis is as follows this is very vaguely the cover story this might have might have been seen yeah yeah it might have been so we got a guy named captain philip star he has led a charmed life no matter what the odds were he'd always survived everything the germans had thrown at him as he fought his way up the italian boot in the middle of a battle he's told by the regimental commander that the office of strategic services the oss the world war ii forerunner to the cia and something that gets a decent amount of use in DC Comics history, has ordered him to report to them immediately. After a courier flight in a B-25 and shooting down an enemy fighter en route by himself, yeah, I mean, (laughs) this guy charmed life and superstar. He is met by Dave Cooper, old acquaintance of Captain Philip Starr. Several other men are with Cooper, big brass mostly, and Starr is briefed on a mission. They want him to assassinate a man, which Starr is strongly against. I'm a soldier, not a butcher, he says. But what if killing that one man could save millions of others? What if 
rapid-fire automatic weaponry had never been invented. All you had to do is kill the man that invented it. Leonardo da Vinci. Star can't believe his ears. The genius of the Renaissance? A man 500 years ahead of his time? It's insane. Besides, he's already dead. Yes, but we have this unbelievable new invention. A time machine. They demonstrate <laughs> what's that? <laughs> They're into rats. Yeah. <laughs> time machine, rats, d- disappearing mice that time travel. We're, we're going to end up with a depopulated Earth by the end of this story, I bet. Let's find out. So they demonstrate the principle to Captain Star using a small model of the time machine to send a pair of eyeglasses back in time 10 seconds. The glasses vanish then reappear after the allotted time, which I got to tell you means they sent the glasses forward in time, 10 seconds. But hey, Killjoy, <laughs> Killjoy. <laughs> little mini Killjoy there. Time machine Killjoy, leave it to me. So the machine then self-destructs, an unfortunate side effect of operation. A man-sized machine gives the traveler one hour to accomplish their task before returning them back to the time from which they started. Star was born for this mission. They couldn't order him to do it, but killing Da Vinci could change history and save countless lives. There was a certain insane justice to it. Star agrees. He steps into the machine. There's an eerie glow, unnerving pulsations. Then he suddenly finds himself in the year 1499 outside the city of Milan, which is under siege by the French. At first, Star thinks he's still in World War II. But then he sees that the artillery is coming from 15th century bombards and runs for cover. Some Italian troops had seen Star materialize out of thin air and believe him to be a French wizard. They open fire, but Star's charmed life holds to form as he climbs the city's walls. Star can't shoot any of the Italians since his mission is to get one man, so he uses his pistol as a club to fight his way clear. The cry goes out to the citizens of Milan that a French wizard has infiltrated the city. Soon everyone is looking for Star, who successfully evades them until he finds Da Vinci's studio on the Street of the Rose. Da Vinci is there, busily putting ideas to paper when Star enters. He aims his 45 at Da Vinci, who is interested in the strange handpiece being pointed at him. I too design intriguing weapons, purely for amusement, of course, No one would ever build them. Star is horrified. He doesn't know. He can't understand what they will do with them. To him, they're just amusing toys. I can't kill a man with the brain of a giant, but the heart of a child. At that moment, the mob finds Star. Star opens fire, but is overwhelmed and drops the pistol. Da Vinci is fascinated by the rapid-fire weapon. The mob decides that only fire can destroy one of the devil's agents. So they... (laughs) That's that's strange. If he's the devil's agent, fire and hell, whatever. So, you know, okay, fine. (laughs) What what else you got? Moving on, moving on. So they prepare to burn Star at the stake. But as flames start to lick at his clothes, Star's hour runs out, and he is returned to the 20th century. As he debriefs the officials, the time machine self-destructs. Star reveals that he just couldn't kill Da Vinci. The brass proceed to chew him out. If you'd done your job, Da Vinci might never have lived to stumble onto the principle of rapid-fire weaponry. But Star has made a horrifying discovery. Perhaps Da Vinci didn't stumble onto it. We gave it to Da Vinci on a silver platter. Put it right into his innocent, inventive hands. I left my forty-five automatic in the 15th century! 
no. That's where it ends. That's, I'll, I'll get to my comments uh, later and add a little something to them. But for right now, Rich has got a little bit of a killjoy uh, was here in History Minute for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking a lot this episode, folks. Um, page three, panel five is the best example of the unit patch Captain Star wears. It belongs to the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, the guys planning the invasion of Western Europe. The odds of some random captain running around the battlefields of Italy assigned to Schaefer are somewhere between slim and none. Also, the U.S. insignia on the wing of the B-25 is upside down. Page four, panel three is the best example. Now, in 1499, King of France, Louis XII, conquered Milan as part of the Italian Wars. Da Vinci apparently fled Milan for his safety during the fighting. So choosing to try to pick off Da Vinci in Milan while he might not still be there? That's a pretty huge roll of the, uh, roll of the dice. Now, what exactly did Da Vinci design? There's a picture of it in the album. There, it was a three-tiered, fan-shaped, 12-barreled gun carriage. One tier would fire 12 shots in a fan-shaped pattern for maximum effectiveness and be rotated so it could cool. After a second tier was fired, the first tier was brought up to be reloaded as the third tier could be fired. So was it a machine gun? No, but as is often the case with Leonardo, it's an interesting concept. Comments and commendations. OSS guy Dave Cooper looks like a classic spook from the 1970s. Slicked back hair, flat top eyeglasses, fitted suit, mustache. This is not a 40s spook. I suppose I could have put that in Killjoy, but whatever. While I appreciate the story, there are a bunch of loopholes. Even if you take out Da Vinci, I'm pretty sure someone else would have come up with the idea in time. Hell, he designed a prototype tank too. Why don't you just build a new time machine? Go to 1932 or 1918 and off Hitler. Or why can't you go and try to kill Da Vinci a second time? Was there some unspoken Star Trek temporal mechanics thing at work here? Anywho, I think the inks in the story are pretty heavy, which crowds a lot of the panels. I like the time travel fade on page seven, panel five. But why is he going on this mission all dressed up in his ribbons, a tie, etc.? At least change into your combat uniform. Or better yet, get some period dress so you can slip in as compared to fight in alone that was a lot harder than it needed to be <laughs> man you turned cnc into an extension of kjwh <laughs> honestly i'd have much the same stuff to say except that almost all pulpy time travel stories share these loopholes to help them function and uh what i was thinking of earlier that i didn't put in the script yet was this kind of reminded me, and I don't know why I didn't write this down, of the classic time travel story, A Sound of Thunder, where a guy goes back in time on a dinosaur safari, and he's told not to step off the path. He does. He comes back. Everything sucks. It's his fault because he stepped on a butterfly. So this reminded me of that. Like, you come back, and it's like, you fool, you caused the thing we were trying to avoid. Blah. So getting all that out of the way, I was very happy to see the art of Frank Robbins on display here. I've always been a fan of Frank's very identifiable and very dynamic style. Pretty much every panel makes me happy here. But I'll call out the final page on or the final panel on page nine for a prime example of Frank's fluid action and panel design work with Captain Star sweeping across the width of the panel in the middle of his leap down into the castle's courtyard. A lot of folks are critical of Robbins when it comes to anatomy and some other stuff, but I don't think anyone could legitimately say anything against his talent for action and storytelling. More Frank Robbins for me. Thank you. 
please bring it. So that is our stuff on the first uh, story in the issue. Now we're going to take a look at an article in the issue called Behind the Scenes at the DC Comic World. Rich, hit it. Yep. Like I said, I'm going to be talking a lot this episode, so I hope you like the sound of my voice. It's a half-page article. Here comes the comics man. I just have to read this whole freaking thing. Have you ever had trouble finding a store that carries DC Comics magazines? Have you ever had a hard time locating a particular issue that just didn't seem to go on sale anywhere? Then it's time you heard about DC's latest and greatest project, the Comic Mobile. Over the last two years, DC's vice president and production manager, Saul Harrison, has received hundreds of letters from readers who have had difficulty in locating the DC line of comics. One answer to the problem appeared to be subscriptions, and all DC mags began carrying the proper form, offering 15 issues for $3. Realizing that few readers could afford to subscribe to all the titles they collect at once, Mr. Harrison developed the totally unique concept of the Comic Mobile with the blessing of Carmine Infantino, the publisher of DC, and it was all systems go. Picture, if you will, a brightly decorated band covered with all the heroes and heroines comprising the DC line of superstars. The blaring, here comes the comics man, wrapped around the super van. And with covers of the latest issues filling the windows, the project that in jest had been known as Solly's Folly around the office began taking our comic magazines right to the neighborhood streets and appears to be a stunning success. Test sites were carefully chosen in the Long Island and New Jersey areas where comics were not distributed. Could comic books be brought to the people the way ice cream is? The answer is yes! Readers from 3 to 93 kept coming back to the comic mobile for their favorite DC magazines. Everyone from action to young romance. See, there we go. We're on our way. We're on our way to the romance books. The signs are there. Every character from Adam to Zatanna. Inside, the van is decorated with posters of Batman, Robin, Superman, and Plop. Plop. The num- <laughs> yes, Plop. <laughs> the, the, the number one selling comic book so far in the comic mobile's journeys. It's probably the only copies ever sold of Flop or a Plop, which was kind of a flop. It's a little slip there, but. Anywho, original artwork and pictures of Superman line the interior along with giant buttons proclaiming Shazam is coming. It's kind of a mixed message. While stopping at day camps, parks, beaches, and the New York Giants summer training camp, the Comic Mobile has run Superman cartoons to entertain its customers in between purchases of comics. The t-shirts, pennants, and souvenirs from the amazing world of Superman and Metropolis Illinois. Messrs. Harrison and Infantino may well revolutionize comic magazine distribution. They did not. With their possible plans of beginning a fleet of comic mobiles, which also didn't happen, all around the country. Not only can we at DC tell which of our mags the readers are buying, but we can also see just who is reading them and get direct feedback from these fans. Our ultimate goal is to make sure that every adult and child who wants comic magazines can find them. Yet, while we send out our comic mobiles to a few cities, we want to help our readers anywhere who have problems finding our comics. If your area is not getting comic books, or if you can't locate all the titles you want, send a letter describing the trouble spot to the DC Comic Mobile, care of Saul Harrison, National Periodical Publications, 75 Rockefeller Plaza, New York, New York, 10019. Meanwhile, keep your ears open for a ringing bell and the words faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah, that's what you want to yell out in the, in the middle of a city. Echoing down your street, the DC Comic Mobile may be coming to your neighborhood next so there we go uh okay well i've got plenty of things to add to this 
One, I went on, uh, went on a search to find out what kind of comic book sales they're looking at. And I found a ranking of comic mobile sales by title in order. So here we go, the top 10. Well, it's a three-way tie for eighth. Uh, Strange Sports Stories, Shazam and Ghosts. Seven, House of Mystery. Six, Wonder Woman. Five, Superman. Four, The Unexpected. Three, Weird War Tales! Yes! <sighs> Two, Batman. And one, the aforementioned plop. Now, again, they, they weren't lying about plop. That's amazing. <laughs> um, having read all of this, I just, I just had to do more. I had to find out more about how this comic mobile thing panned out. And I found an article written, uh, Cleefield on Comics, or April 2nd, 2021. So you get to listen to my voice talking about, about the fate of the comic mobile. In the early 1970s, DC's Vice President Saul Harrison had the idea for a van that would drive around the suburbs selling comics in much the same way an ice cream truck would sell frozen treats. Recall that this is just as the direct market was starting and dedicated comic shops were pretty rare. So publishers were still trying to try a variety of different methods to sell more comics. Harrison got a hold of a van, painted, here comes the comics man on the side, and slapped a bunch of commercially available stickers of DC characters on the side. So I think we did an ad about that. He then sent Michael Uslan, the same one who went on to produce the Tim Burton Batman movie, out to the suburbs of New Jersey with the van stocked with leftover material from the in-house library. Uslan would drive around to local beaches and parks and such, ring some bells out the window, and sell comics out of the van. This would have been the summer of 1973. When Uslan had to go back to school in the fall, the van was turned over to Bob Rizakis, a writer and production director at DC Comics. Also, uh, also known as the Answer Man, sorry. Instead of driving through New Jersey, though, Harrison decided they should try Long Island, New York. Rizakis took a train out to Jersey and then drove the van back. However, what Rosakis quickly discovered, though, was that the legalities of selling were a bit different in New York. In the first place, he had to get a vendor's license for each of the townships he would be selling in. In the second place, none of them allowed him to stop at local beaches and parks, where Uslan seemed to have had the most success. So he had to simply drive up and down the streets of Long Island, hoping to attract some passing attention with the bells he held out the window. It's not terribly surprising that sales were abysmal. Rosakis claims he barely made enough money to cover gasoline expenses. And this was back when a gallon of gas cost the same price as a comic book, a mere 20 cents. Interestingly, though Uslan's bestseller was Plop Number 1, which had just recently come out, and Rosakis says Number 2 sold very well, compared to everything else, when it came out while he was driving. But the sales did not justify the experiment, and Rosakis was called back into the D.C. offices after about six weeks. The van was sold, traded, given to Bruce Hamilton, later the publisher of Gladstone Comics. He tested the comic mobile concept in Arizona for a few months. The writer says, I can't find any record of how successful it was there, but I suspect not very. The van ultimately was demolished when it was hit by a semi. <laughs> the experiment was such a failure that no one seems to have seriously considered repeating it. One could argue, easily, that Harrison's plan was a little too loose on the details and wasn't given sufficient planning and or funding. One could argue that it wasn't given enough time to develop. Zakas has noted that most of his clients were regulars, much like a local comic shop. One could argue that the market was radically different 50 years ago. So maybe a comic mobile today would have had a much better results. Whoever wants to try this again, I wish them far better luck than Uslan, Rosakis, and Hamilton had. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole thing was just way, way too good to not freaking share. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, that's amazing. I have vague memories of seeing this ad maybe in, you know, some books that were picked up by me or my parents at a garage sale or something. So I saw some old ads and I had like, that would be amazing if a, you know, van would drive up full of comics. That'd be great. Obviously, it had long since gone before I was conscious of, of the program and its death. But I like that image of like, you know, them, you know, Rosakis just driving with a bell he's ringing by hand out the window it's like bring out your dead from the uh from the holy grail the the plague so. carts yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Like, i think i'm going to get better yeah <laughs> literally like the the plague cart version of comic book sales that's, that's well, the crap that they had at the at, back, at the, back at the headquarters <laughs> yep just get rid of these please just take them take them and drive up and down the street Fantastic. But yeah, that, that's kind of like the shoot from the hip attitude in the 70s comic book world. That's fascinating. I, I wish I could have at least seen them trying to do it. And the fact that it got passed off and then someone else tried it to Arizona and then finally they just wrecked the thing. <laughs> well, there, like I said, there's going to be pictures in the photo album because like I said, I mean, there's there's this is this is just too freaking good to not have a whole freaking segment. <laughs> okay, it's too bad they trashed it, because imagine in today's convention scene, if we ever really have lots of conventions again, how cool it would be to pose by the original comic mobile, you know? But that's gone, so, eh, too bad. So that, like, bittersweet saga aside, we're going to take a look at the, um, is this the second and final story in the issue, because the first one was so long, and we're going to let... Uh, someone you haven't heard from in a while. Rich, read all about that story for you. Yeah, you haven't heard from me at all this issue. When Death Took a Hand, six pages, written by Sheldon Meyer, art by Bernard Bailey. Synopsis. Casino, Italy, 1944. Italy again. A unit of Americans are trapped in a pocket by the Germans. PFC Herb Ivers is terrified. Just once before he dies... He wants to act like a real soldier. Suddenly, a hand grenade lands at his feet. Everyone else dives for cover, but Ivers freezes. Ivers sees a deathly specter beckoning to him with skeleton hands, but all the Sarge sees is the live grenade. The grenade explodes, and the Sarge thinks Ivers has been killed. But incredibly, not only has Ivers survived, he wasn't even wounded. Still convinced he saw death, a sense of calm confidence comes over Ivers. Rallying the unit, Sarge prepares to check out a nearby ridge, but Ivers sees death again, beckoning to them in the direction of the ridge. By now, the Sarge has had it with Ivers' visions and tells the medics to grab him. He's battle happy! But Ivers punches the medic and escapes. He starts climbing the ridge to prove to the Sarge he was right. Sure enough, an enemy machine gun nest opens fire on Ivers. As the Americans scramble for cover, Ivers tosses a grenade into the nest, destroying it. As Ivers single-handedly clears a path through enemy opposition, a platoon follows him up the ridge to help. The Germans can't seem to hit the crazed Ivers. Savage hand-to-hand fighting breaks out, and despite outnumbering the Americans six to one, the demoralized Germans surrender. As the Americans check their ranks for casualties, they realize that they're only short one man. On the far side of the ridge, where the attack started from, lies an American killed by hand grenade. It was Ivers, and he'd been dead for hours. It was impossible. They'd all followed him over the ridge earlier, and yet here he was. When the Sarge filed his report later, there was one detail he had to leave out. Killjoy, the Master Sergeant's rank isn't drawn right. Instead of the bottom three stripes looking like rockers, they're horizontal lines. Page five, panel three is the best example. Come on, Bailey. 
pick up a damn Sergeant Rock magazine if you're not sure. Hell, Joel Kubert is right down the freaking hall. Also, page one, panel four, the incoming grenade is American, not a potato masher. Again, Joel Kubert is right down the hall. <laughs> Comments and commendations. I like this story, but I wasn't a fan of Bailey's heart. Just seemed clunky. Inks were heavy. Explosion panels were boring. Kaboom. Not even an exclamation mark. There's almost a comical dead German soldier on page five, panel four, that appears to have his tongue hanging out. But it ain't all bad. Page four, panel five, where death is overlooking the hand-to-hand combat of the two sides is real good. So for my comments and commendations, yeah, this kind of art is what I'd refer to as workmanlike. It's a bit stiff. And as you mentioned, kind of dull considering all the action going on. I did think that the specter of death was rendered well. In fact, he seemed more lively than most of the other figures in the story. As for the story itself, it was okay. I guess they were following Ivor's ghost all that time. Eh, fine. <laughs> for a short story, it was all right. But um, if this had if this had been the lead, I would have been really disappointed. So moving on. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very average. Like nothing compared to that first story as crazy and loophole filled as that first story was. At least it was a blast to read and look at. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) moving on from that final story, we're going to go over and check the mail bag at the APO weird war tales page. Rich, take it away. Okay. Jim Sinkawaik, whatever, loves Park, Illinois, gets my nod in this one. Dear Joe, Weird War Tales number 16 was great. The cover was really far out. Ah, the 70s. More Dead Than Alive was a terrific story and had very good art. The Conquerors was one of the best back features I've ever read, and Evil Eye was also very good. One very good idea is using death as a guide to the stories in Weird War, but I wish he would tell us more full-length stories like Weird War Tales 11 and 14. And Joe responds, Dear Jim, as I've said before, it's much harder to do a full-lengther than a collection of short stories, so they're going to remain rare treats. Besides, you'd get spoiled if I featured them every month. Yeah, it it goes without saying, man, that we both had our... uh, very definitive opinions about uh, Weird War Tales number 16. Garbage. First story was great. I really enjoyed the first story and the rest of it was... Yeah, I, uh, I, I can't hang with, with uh, Jim, Jim Sinky Sink there uh, on this one. But, uh, you know, everybody's different. As for the rest of this letters column, there are no less than three letters going one way or the other about the balance between weird and war in the title. And, and what I hope for his sake is his final response to this issue. Poor beleaguered Joe Orlando replies to all three of them with this. He says, Dear readers, after several months of discussing the issue of weird versus war and carefully reading all of your opinions and arguments, I've decided to keep the tone of weird war tales as it is. Most of you feel that the current balance is interesting and many of the dissenters, like Becky Martin in this issue, rarely read either mystery or war comics and prefer one type to the other exclusively. Mike Mallory summed up my feelings in the word originality. It's the originality of WWT that's making it one of the most popular titles on the newsstand, so people leave Joe Orlando alone. Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. I have ruled it is over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. You know, so hopefully that's the end of that issue in 
the letters column. I doubt it, though. But in the meantime, we're going to move on to our spotlighted ads for this issue. And I'm going to kick us off here. On the back of the back cover, I believe, of this issue, there is an ad for something called the Ready Rangers Mobile Field Pack. Now, this ad was suggested to us to be on the lookout for by Ranger Gord of the Prairie Justice Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. And, and lo and behold, not like one, one episode, episode after. Yeah, one episode after he mentions it, we had it in an issue. So what we have here is a one, two, three, four, like a six panel comic style ad that leads off with the title another adventure with the ready rangers have you got what it takes to be a ready ranger all you need is an aurora ready ranger mobile field pack now man aurora is the official corporate sponsor of 1970s comic books they, they are all over these books man like models they got the backpack here they're just they're the most common company name we have seen yet so basically I'm not, I'm not going to read the entire comic to you guys. We will put a picture of it in the album. But you got three guys, three kids going on an adventure, and they've got the Ready Rangers mobile field pack, and they either pretend to get in trouble or really do, and they use the various items within the Ready Rangers field pack to call for help to survive the elements, and eventually they are picked up by a helicopter that lifts them to safety. So they better have been in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, this is insane. You got like, you know, I've located the North Star with my Ready Ranger Starfinder. You know, the lookout tower should be, it should spot the Ready Ranger signal light and all this. And then the last panel here that like really has the kit all laid out. It says, get your Ready Ranger mobile field pack. When you're a Ready Ranger, you're always ready for any danger. And, right yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my God. <laughs> and there's a, you know, a picture of the contents that you get, including like a bedroll and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, oh, here we go. The bottom of the panel says Ready Ranger Mobile Field Headquarters. Uh, you get a poncho, bedroll, communication power, communications power pack, PA horn, periscope, intruder detector, starfinder, compass, invisible slate, and other accessories, tent, distance computer, and canteen from Aurora. Now, I got to say, at no point during this ad do they mention whether these items are actually functional or not. Like, if you go wandering off into the woods with this plastic mobile field headquarters or whatever and get yourself killed or, you know, lost forever, <laughs> like, they don't mention that this stuff might not actually function to save your life. <laughs> So I guess this, you know, the early 70s were a bit less litigious than what we're used to dealing with today. So there we go. Good timing on Ranger Gord's part. The Ready Rangers mobile field pack. Get yours and just strike out into the woods, people. Don't die. <laughs> uh, so many good ads this issue. But I had to go with Kenner's Sea Action Football. Again, Kenner had those two sexist girls-only toy ads we discussed in earlier episodes. So, of course, there are only boys playing with this because, you know, girls don't like football. That's a slide projector displaying the plays on a Jumbotron-type screen over a football field playing board. And you pull the slides through the projector to see the play develop. Dad has uh, two kids playing. Board games are no fun. Let's play new Sea Action Football. It's the only game where you see the plays develop on the screen. You're the quarterback. You run the team by choosing a slide for each play. Offensively, 
and defensively. So what, quarterback chooses the defensive plays? That doesn't make any sense. Choose from eight offensive plays, six defensive plays, over 288 possible play results. Score tied. Only two minutes to go. Red team has the ball on blue team's 35-yard line. Hmm, third and six. He'll expect a long pass. Maybe I could fool him. Or, and the other kid's like, hmm, he's got to go with the long pass, but he's tricky. I think I'll set up for, oh, heck, he picked the long bomb. My 4-3 bump and run defense should work. I got the pass off. It's complete. Touchdown. What a game. All the excitement of real football. (laughs) And hardly any of the traumatic brain injuries. (laughs) Includes projector, 16 offensive and 12 defensive play slides, manually operated scoreboard, action screen, playing field. Ball and down marker labels for all pro team cities, etc. Uses 4D batteries, not included. It, this looks cool for the era, but I can't help thinking after a while it gets pretty predictable. But what do I know? I was three when this issue came out. Yeah, I mean, and we were playing non-electronic battleship, so you know. <laughs> It had to be at least entertaining for a weekend and therefore worth it to the parents to keep the kids entertained and uh, out of their hair for a bit (laughs) until it broke or whatever. (laughs) With our spotlighted ads out of the way, we're going to move on to our section we like to call Got Any Last Words? Okay. I like both stories, but the art in both left a bit to be desired personally. Not that the art was bad, but I don't know. Good letters page, great ads. I'll place this one in the above average slot, but not by much. For all its faults, I'll call One Hour to Kill my favorite here. Hey, 14 pages of Frank Robbins goodness wins me over for sure. Throw in some fun ads and that behind the scenes article about the comic mobile, and I'm a happy guy. Pretty good issue in my book, even with kind of a flat tire for the final story, but it was really short. So I'd put it a little higher than Rich, but hey, what are you going to do? I got taste. So with uh, the last words out of the way, we're going to take a spin over to the dead letter office where we talk about likes, shares, and comments on social media and our Gmail account. And I always forget to mention that we have merch on redbubble.com. All you got to do, people, is go to redbubble.com, search for Weird Warriors Podcast, and you can get our awesome logo drawn and designed by Bill Walco on pretty much anything. You could want to stick it on. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Rich, you've seen the picture. Rich has it on a COVID mask for Pete's sakes. Like, you know, somebody besides me and Rich should probably buy some of this stuff. That's all I'm saying. So with that, a little bit of huckstering out of the way. I'm going to take a look at likes, shares, and comments and all that kind of stuff for episode 19, which covered the infamous Weird War Tales number 16. That was kind of a busy one this time around. On Twitter, we got likes and stuff by... Medium Mike, that's uh, Medium M-I-C on Twitter. Sergeant America, David Jackson, Chris at BTO and Bat Books from the Professor Frenzy Show, I I believe. And uh, we got the All-Star Squadron podcast, the Telltale Mind, Kirk Spencer at Big Five Army on Twitter. We got Dance Along the Edge, that's at D Nolte on Twitter, good friend of the show. And we've got the Manic Pixie Weirdo Podcast. That's MP Weirdo Podcast. I have not listened to that show yet, but with that title, I got to check it out. So we got Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Dr. Bob's Kitchen, that's K-I-T-S-C-H-E-N, at 
Dr. Bob, B-O-B-B, and that's one of our buddies from the Checkered Past podcast. And we have the aforementioned Prairie Justice, a Greg Saunders vigilante podcast at Tolton Gord, our good buddy Ranger Gord. We have Chris Lydon. We got Pat Dorian. Dr. Ange 70, good old Ange is here, Long Box of Darkness, that is our, our friend Herman, and again, with his Into the Weird account right after that, Professor Frenzy of, of course, the Professor Frenzy Show. We have Coffee and Comics, uh, which is our buddy Clint Robison, Luke, Jack, and Nettie from the Earth Destruction Directive podcast, Doc Strange, Billy Delicious himself. We have good old Bill at Spy Vinyl on Twitter. And we have, and this is why I love comics podcast. We have Dave Steele from the Earth 2 podcast. We have Stu Oliver, who is at Crazy OS Kitchen on Twitter. And we have Ryan Sawyer, the Lightning Monk at Lightning Monk on Twitter. He does an independent comic all by himself called The Lightning Monk that I am a Patreon of and super fun read. So check him out. Going over to the swampy waters of Facebook, we were visited by Peter Watson of the Earth 2 podcast, our friend Herschel Memis, my buddy Ken Boutillier, and Kurt Matilla, Daniel Rapoli, our new buddy Bill Mooney, David Steele coming over to, uh, from the Earth 2 podcast, uh, Billy D is over here, Brian Matthews, and over on Gmail, we got a message from William Dunleavy, also known as Billy D. And he says, yeah, these ads are lame. Good show as usual. Loved seeing the pics on the FB page. There you go, Rich. Looks like you guys had a blast. I love Alcala's art, especially on horror or Conan stories. Not sure I'd love superhero work by him, but I think he did a Swamp Thing story at one time that had some JLA members in it that was decent. Yeah, I'm not sure if I've ever seen Alcala do uh, superheroes, but Swamp Thing seems like a likely category since that was more on the spooky side. And uh, we also have the Earth 2 podcast sending us a Gmail message saying, hi, guys, just finished episode 19. I had to laugh when Max said, my favorite moment with the bazooka was when that's a sentence you don't hear every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, some people might hear it every day. You know what I'm saying? Like. It's tough out there. I was wondering if you've considered covering the Sergeant Rock Viking Prince team up from our Army at War 162 and 163 as a special mission episode. I think it definitely counts as a weird war tale. Make war no more. Peter, now that is completely up to Rich. He assigns all the special missions and I have no doubt he's got those issues. Am I right? Oh, of course I do. It's, 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 I went through the entire collection. It is on the radar of potential Sergeant Rock issues, but I haven't decided about the Sergeant Rock is, it's like over the horizon. We've got a ways to go before we get that. Well, Peter, you know where to send the bribe money to. So there you go. (laughs) Send it right to me. And uh, I'll, then I'll talk to Rich, maybe. All right. So, I'm of buying hey. merch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Redbubble.com, man. Send a, post a picture of yourself all kitted out in Weird Warriors podcast gear. And then, you Hat, know, shirt, mask, mug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, who knows what might happen? The nothing. future is an undiscovered country. Also, probably nothing. Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> with all that out of the way, as I like to say, Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for the next episode. You know what you're here for. The 22nd Bazooka Blast an issue of Weird War Tales. The Bat Bomb. Metallica. The shortest letters page yet. All this in a reprinted story, too. 
drop by and see what the hell I'm talking about. And, and maybe I will. Who knows? But until then, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We are the Weird Warriors, and we promise to make war. No more. Thank you.